You know, the lyrics of that song are, uh, at least for me, very um, very psalm-like, Old Testament psalm-like, in that, you know, they express this prayer to God in which we together sing, Lord, a thousand times I failed you, and yet your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, I'm, I'm caught in your grace. You know, with your will above all else, my purpose remains. Losing myself and my heart and my soul, I give you control. You know, that is a pretty serious prayer, and uh, I can't help but wonder if it's true, you know, for me, for you, for all of us, you know, that in response to who God is and all that He's graciously done, we're willing to submit to Him and to lose ourselves for His sake. Uh, interesting question. And with that question in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament, to Mark chapter 8, if you have them, Mark chapter 8. And today we're wrapping up our, our series called Seeking to Know, in which we've been exploring uh, the idea of uh, understanding and pursuing God's will for our lives. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about a lot of things, but we've talked specifically about how, you know, it's impossible for us as flawed, finite creatures to comprehend, fully comprehend the infinite mind of our Creator. We just can't do it, it's beyond our capability. And so in areas of life where God has not provided specific instruction, uh, we're free to make what are hopefully uh, wise and productive decisions. We've also learned that uh, when it comes to certain matters of belief and behavior, God through Scripture is clear on what is right and good and healthy and safe for us. And He loves us. He has our best in mind. And so He wants us to trust Him and obey what He says, i.e. do His will. And so in understanding that, I want, to, I want to consider something Jesus said one day to a big group of people uh, that is particularly challenging, but uh, explicitly communicates God's will for those who follow him. Uh, let, let me set the historical context here of Mark chapter 8. Jesus was traveling around the northern region of, uh, of Israel, claiming to be uh, the Messiah of God, you know, deity in the flesh, come to suffer and die as the sacrifice for man's sin and rebellion. Uh, he shared what he called the gospel, good news. Uh, what's the good news? That primarily that having a right relationship with God is not based on religious work uh, or, or human performance, but on God's unmerited favor, on God's grace. And so as Jesus taught on all this, on who he was, what he'd come to do, what he offered the world, you know, people from all walks of life, uh, young, old, rich, poor, uh, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, healthy, sick, people faced a decision. You know, did they believe Jesus? And would they in response become a follower of his? A disciple uh, was the term that was used back then. Literally, it meant a committed student who learns, honors, and obeys uh, the words of their teacher. And, you know, it seems to me that whether it's first century Israel or 21st century America, it really doesn't make a difference. What you choose to believe about Jesus, what you do with him, the decision you make about him is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's a decision that impacts life. It uh, carries long-term implications, and it's a decision that we all have to wrestle with. In fact, here in Mark 8, Jesus had a very interesting thing to say about this whole disciple-follower uh, decision-making issue. Just so you know, in the text here, Peter, John, Andrew, and the rest of the group uh, had just told Jesus they believed he was the Messiah, the Christ. Um, but saying they believed was easy. Jesus understood that. So he calls the, the 12 together along with a crowd of nearby listeners, and he raises the bar of discipleship to a new level. I mean, Jesus got it. He knew a lot of people were hanging around him because 
you know, he said and did some pretty radical things, you know, not the least of which was confronting the religious elite of the day and their hypocrisy, which alone made him quite popular. But for the sake of clarity, here in chapter 8, 30, verse 34, Jesus describes for the entire crowd what true discipleship is about. In essence, he says, here is my will for you. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Translation, he says, if you want to be my disciple, uh, it means more than just saying you believe. It's more than just hanging around other religious type people. He says to be a true follower requires a serious, conscious, intentional decision, resulting in unconditional commitment. Now, in, in order to better grasp the nature of that kind of uh, decision, think of it this way. How many of us in the room would love to be in great physical shape? I mean, I'm sure there's some of us here. Or how many of us would love to have our checkbook balanced and our finances completely in order? Or how many of us would uh, <clears throat> like our house or our apartment or our dorm room spotlessly clean, no clutter, all the, you know, all the dishes away, clothes away, floors vacuumed? That'd be nice, right? And how many students here would like to have your grades at honor roll or dean's list levels. Now, across the board, those are all very good things. So here's the question. If we want them, why don't we have them? And the answer for the most part is we don't have them because there are other things in life that we want more. You know, for many of us, if we're not in <clears throat> great physical shape, it's because we haven't made an irrevocable decision to care for ourselves. You know, physical conditioning and nutrition just isn't a priority. If the checkbook and the finances are messed up, it's because we haven't made an unconditional commitment to be fiscally responsible. Uh, if the house or the apartment or the dorm room is trashed and cluttered, it's because we're not dedicated, not really dedicated to keeping it clean. And, and take it from me, if you're a student, your grades aren't where you want them to be or where they could be or should be, it's because you haven't made a firm commitment to do what it takes to get them there. And see, that's the kind of decision Jesus is talking about. Um, not just a statement of what you would like to see happen or some preferential wish list. When Jesus talks about uh, making a decision, he's talking about a prioritized, dedicated, uncompromising commitment. Uh, <clears throat> every now and then I'll have a conversation with someone who is struggling in their spiritual life. And, and you know, they'll, they'll, maybe they've read you know, the book of Acts in the early church and what was happening, or maybe they read a biography about a famous Christian leader, or they look around at the perceived maturity of, <clears throat> of other Christians, and they wonder why they're not growing in their relationship with God. And they'll say things like, you know, why am I not like that? Why am I not as kind and gracious and loving and generous and engaged as I like to be, as so-and-so is over there? And so maybe some of us have wondered a similar thing. Yeah, I think if we're honest, on some level, we, we know the reason. I mean, it's because we simply haven't made a commitment to learn, to grow, to engage, to serve, to sacrifice, to, to make others more important than ourselves. We just haven't. We haven't come to uh, a place where we've irrevocably decided to orient our lives around what we say we believe. Now, here's the deal. This isn't meant to heap guilt on anybody for not being, you know, spiritual enough. That's not the point. That's not my intention. Certainly it wasn't Jesus' intention. When he spoke to Peter and John and Andrew and this crowd of people, he wasn't trying to make them feel guilty. He was simply trying to help them understand the nature of the decision that they faced. He says, if anyone wants to come after me to be a follower, a true disciple, this is what's involved. Unconditional commitment. 
Now, why did he say that? Well, <clears throat> he said it because Jesus knew that the biggest challenge most of his listeners would encounter was not that they would renounce their faith in him, but they would settle for a watered-down version of it. You know, it wasn't that Jesus would, or that his followers, or that people would deny Jesus altogether, but they'd simply concede to mediocrity. You know, men and women who called themselves followers of Jesus, Christians, would at some point stop praying and trusting God to work in significant, even miraculous ways. They'd cease to praise God and celebrate his goodness with enthusiasm and, and, and great anticipation. Uh, they'd miss out on the joy of, of ridiculous generosity and helping those who are less fortunate and who are in need of, 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 of hearing the gospel of, of God. They'd fail to share this good news of, of his grace and love with compassion with people and authenticity. In other words, they would just settle They'd settle for superficial religiosity and empty ritual rather than experience and participate in genuine spiritual community. And I think the same is true today. The greatest challenge for us in the church, the biggest temptation is not that that we will renounce faith in Jesus, but we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. And in the end, you know what? That's a pretty disappointing way to live. Jesus says, if you, really, if you really understand who I am uh, and what I am offering you, you will decide to be a disciple. You will decide to follow me, follow me and here's what that, deci- uh, that decision involves. Two, two primary things. First, <clears throat> it requires that you deny yourself. And for us living in a, a self-indulgent culture, that idea, you know, is, is, is weird. The idea of personal den- denial is, is quite threatening, really. And so we're like, well, what is exactly does that mean? And Jesus, throughout his teaching, defined what it means. For, for one, it means if we decide to be a disciple, we must deny personal excuses. One day, Jesus was having dinner at <clears throat> the house of a Pharisee, a religious expert. He had been invited. He accepted the invitation. And <clears throat> while they're sitting there having dinner... One of the guests lets out this sort of, this really religious sounding declaration and says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I just imagine Jesus turning and looking at him like, really? And then saying, let me tell you a story. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I I just got married, so I can't come. Now think about that story for a second. Jesus says this rich guy throws a huge party. It's free for everybody who wants to come. He invites all these people. He sends out the servant to say, hey, let's go. Everything is ready. Party's on. And all the servant gets is, is excuses. One dude says, hey, sorry, I bought some land. I've you know, got to go look at it. Really? Does that sound legitimate to you? It doesn't sound legitimate to me. I'm thinking if someone's going to invest in property, aren't they going to look at the property before they buy it? Sure they are. It was a lame excuse for not following the servant. And the second guy says, well, his excuse wasn't any better. He says, you know, well, sorry, I bought some oxen. I got to go see if they work. What? If you're going to buy farm equipment or you're going to 
or by some form of transportation, anyone with common sense is going to test the equipment out before handing over the cash, right? It was just another weak excuse. And then the third guy is a bit different. He says, you know, sorry, but I just got married. I can't come. And as excuses go, I think that seems like a reasonable one because when I first got married, I wasn't interested in hanging around with anyone other than my wife. So to me, this sounds like a good excuse. But the point of Jesus' story wasn't to differentiate between reasonable and unreasonable excuses, you know, for not responding to the invitation. No. His point was, if anyone wants to eat at the banquet of God, they must accept the invitation and follow the servant. In short, if you want to enter the kingdom of God and be part of the party that he's throwing, You've got to make the kind of decision which says to Jesus, no matter the obstacles, no matter my situation, no matter the fears and doubts I may have, I will not make excuses. I will follow you. That's true discipleship. That's what it means. It means denying personal excuses. It also means denying what Scripture refers to as double-mindedness. You know, every now and then, come across people in our world whose lives are characterized by a sole purpose. It's what, it is what they are about. You know what I mean? The focus of their existence is just so obvious uh, to everyone else. It's easy to define their life with a single word. For example, take a look at some of these folks. Uh, who's this? LeBron James, right? What, what, what would you say? One word. Basketball. Basketball. That's what he's about. How about this guy? Donald Trump. Money. Business, right? Hillary Clinton. Politics. Tiger Woods, golf. Uh, who's this? Quentin Tarantino, films. He's all about films. Jimmy Fallon, comedy, right? And who's this? Mick Jagger, Geritol. Like, wait, no, no, excuse me. Did I say that? Uh, not Geritol, uh, rock and roll, you know? 71 years old, going strong, pretty cool. Uh, here's the deal. Whether you like these people or not, you've got to admit uh, they, they are single-mindedly focused and they are fully committed. Man, they are total, they are sold out, they are full bore. It's what, it's, it's why they stand out for mostly everybody else because, you know, most of our lives aren't characterized by a single purpose. Most people tend to be scattered, compartmentalized, confused, pulled back and forth between career and family and goals and, and, and entertainment and fear and insecurity and all those things. I mean, if someone was asked to characterize your life with one word, could they do it? And if so, what would they say? What word would they use? I think it's fair to suggest that most people are just kind of drifting through life, not thinking much about it, just kind of stumbling around without any true sense of direction, no single-minded focus, no life purpose. In the New Testament, James says, they're like waves on the ocean, just kind of blown around, tossed about by the wind. They're unstable and double-minded. They're people of divided loyalties. Jesus warned about that. He warned about that double-minded approach to living. In fact, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, he talked to a big crowd of people about, about men and women who worried about everything, just got freaked out about what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what was going to happen next. And Jesus said, look, you know, the, you know, the pagan world runs after those things. He says, but my will for my disciples 
is what? Remember what he said in that Sermon on the Mount? He said, my will is this, that you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added in. And just for the record, that wasn't an observation. It was a command. It was an imperative. He said, seek first God's kingdom. Jesus was talking about the, the, the nature of decision and what it means to be a disciple. And he says, you've got to do away with divided loyalties. You've got to fight against the preoccupation with worldly stuff. You've got to deny double-mindedness and seek me first in your life. Trust me when I tell you, I struggle with that as much as anybody else. I mean, these are hard words for me. Uh, and yet Jesus spoke them. And I have to wrestle with them. I have to, I got to figure out where I am on this. Jesus also taught that, th- that this discipleship decision involves denying rival authorities. In other words, a, a true disciple rejects all other claims on their allegiance. In fact, one day when traveling with a big group of people, he, he suddenly turned around and said to everyone, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And I don't know what your initial reaction to that is, but mine is, man, that is one startling comment. What's up with that? That sounds unusually harsh and cruel. Which is why to understand it, we have to understand the context in which it was spoken. Because Jesus wasn't advocating hostility and disrespect toward parents or siblings or spouses. I mean, being a disciple of his is the very opposite. It's being more like him, right? It means becoming more loving, more forgiving, more gracious to those around you, not just family and friends, but strangers, even enemies. So then, if that's true, what was Jesus saying? And it's interesting, if you read the account, no one, when Jesus says that, no one in the crowd jumps up and says, well, hold on a second, hating parents and, and spouses, that's wrong, Jesus. Nobody says it. Why? Because they knew what he meant. Back in the first century, Jewish people often used the term hate differently from us. It, they used it in hyperbole, as hyperbole. To hate someone was a way of expressing absolute allegiance toward one person over another. It was saying, I'm more dedicated to this person than to this person. If Jesus was saying it to us in our culture, he'd probably put it this way. He'd say, if anyone comes to me but refuses to give me ultimate authority and allegiance over everything and anyone else, everyone else, they cannot be my disciple. And then to drive the point home, he'd reference the most intimate relational commitments you can think of, family. And he would declare that even those relationships are not worth life in the kingdom of God. In short, Jesus explains that a true uh, disciple decides that the most critical relationship in life is their relationship with God. All other authorities, all other allegiances are secondary at best. And that includes our allegiance to jobs and money. Don't forget, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you're devoted to one and you despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money i.e. Jesus calls us to deny rival authorities. And then finally, the decision to be a disciple means denying selfish ambitions. Jesus put it this way, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, for the good news, will save it. And again, this idea of losing ourselves just flies in the face of our culture, right? Where it's all about finding, we're all about finding ourselves. We're going to find ourselves. The famous American poet, considered one of the greatest American poets of all time, W.H. Auden, published a work called The Age of Anxiety in which he he basically derides our Western obsession with, quote-unquote, finding ourselves uh, 
And he writes this. He says, miserable, wicked me. How interesting I am. We would rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather die in dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. I'm no poet, but I'm pretty sure Auden was saying, look, we have a really hard time giving up our own often misplaced, arrogant, self-centered cravings. Obsessing on finding ourselves and fulfilling our deepest desires. It's what the world says life is about. And it's, it's almost as if Jesus had 21st century American culture in mind when he basically says, look, you're never going to find out who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. It doesn't work that way. You've, you're going to have to lose yourself to find yourself. You have to lose yourself in serving me. And this losing, this kind of self-denial that he was talking about, I think takes take shape in many ways. For, uh, for example, for the proud... It means renouncing um, the craving for status and for honor, for recognition, for always getting your way. For the greedy, it means renouncing an appetite for more and more wealth. Uh, for, uh, for the complacent, it means renouncing the love of comfort. For the fearful, it means abandoning the need for security. For the violent, it means rejecting the temptation for revenge. For the religious, it means we recognize we're not as good and righteous as we think. And for you, what is it for you? What does it mean for you? I'm guessing you have an idea because as imperfect human beings in a me-first world, most of us know too, all too well what personal issues and ambitions keep us from offering our lives more fully to God. We know. So what are they? And are you willing to deny them? Because Jesus says in order to be a true disciple, we must submit our will and our desires to God. He says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. No more excuses. No more double-mindedness. No more rival authorities. No more selfish ambitions. And then he says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. You know, we could spend weeks analyzing that statement, but in a nutshell... Jesus is saying, look, we we have to adopt a new philosophy of life. We have to. The philosophy of the world uh, asserts there can be glory without suffering. And Jesus says, no, the philosophy of God's kingdom is very different. It's the opposite, that suffering now will ultimately be transformed into glory. And then he went out and he proved it when when his suffering on the cross resulted in the glory of his resurrection. And so we each need to decide what philosophy we buy into, you know, the world's glory without suffering or God's suffering transformed into glory and make no mistake about it. The philosophy you adopt will determine, will determine how you live. But Jesus wanted there to be no misconceptions on this. He didn't want people to go away thinking that life as a Christian was going to be this easy, comfortable, pain-free deal right up front. He lets people know that there's going to be a price to pay for being a true follower. If there was a cross in his future, there's going to be a cross in ours. And the cross in Mark chapter 8 represents not just, not just illness and injury and broken relationships and financial struggles and family problems, but the cross also represents the oppression sometimes caused by those who reject and oppose the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Jesus put it this way. He says, always remember this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And sometimes I'm afraid that we uh, in the church fail to be clear 
on this aspect of Christianity. Unlike some contemporary peddlers of pop culture religion, Jesus does not promise his followers health and wealth and a variety of self-actualizing, intoxicating, feel-good, trouble-free experiences. He promises a cross. And he doesn't invite us to try it on for size to see if we like it or not. He doesn't offer extra credit to those who voluntarily carry one. Suffering, cross-bearing for our faith is a kingdom reality that separates that separates the men from the boys, the, the sheep from the goats, the, the true followers from simple admirers. I mean, however you want to say it. Jesus said, my disciples will do more than just survey the wondrous cross. Like me, they will somehow, some way experience it. Uh, rejection, humiliation, betrayal, injustice, loss, pain, maybe even death itself. Are we willing to face that? Mark uh, 8.34 is was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite texts. And he's one of my favorite authors, as most of you know. But it was, it was the text he most often quoted. It's very interesting. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he, sums, he summarizes it this way. He says, The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him and with him, everything else thrown in. Now, so here's the deal. Of all the people who heard Jesus say these things that first time, there is no indication how many made a decision to follow him. We don't know. My guess is that for as many who were willing to accept his call to discipleship, there was an equal number or greater number who were not. And when you stop and you consider the kind of radical commitment Jesus calls for to deny yourself, to pick up a cross, you've got to wonder why would anybody do such a thing? Why would, why would anyone answer this invitation to follow and be a disciple? But again, Jesus gave sufficient reason why. He essentially said, if you try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you will save it. In other words, if you, if you go out and try to be your own savior, pursue your own pleasures, do your own thing, your way, chase after the false gods of our culture, money, sex, fame, power, security, then you will lose your life. And not only will you lose your life eternally, but you'll lose the satisfaction of life here and now. See, based on Jesus' teaching, many of us are, are aware of the specter of judgment that hangs over humanity, but we're less aware that choosing the way of self-salvation means losing out on life's fullness in the present. And so with all that said, I'm just wondering, you know, where, where, are, where are each of us on this whole deal? You know, what do we think? What, what, where do we come out on this? Because it's really an important spiritual question, and in being here this morning, You've invited it. So here it is. Have you made your decision? Will you believe and follow Jesus? And understand, being a disciple is not something you're born into. You don't stumble into it. You don't drift into it. It's something you choose. It is a conscious, intentional, well-defined decision you alone must make. And it's one that results in serious, unconditional commitment. And my hope and prayer is that you'll make it. Uh, let me pray for us. 
Our Father, sometimes when we read Jesus' words, they're, um, they're easy, they're comfortable. When he talks about your love for the world, your offer of grace, this good news of grace, how you care about each of us, what happens in our lives, um, those things are comforting to us, and they're easy to accept. But then there are the times when Jesus says some hard things. And I think what we've looked at today is one of those times. When he calls us away from religiosity and superficial um, commitment to true commitment, uh, uncompromised commitment, prioritized commitment. When we say, I'm willing to stop making excuses and I'm willing to put everything above and uh, above you, God. I'm 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 going I'm going to deny myself. I'm committing myself fully to be your follower, all because of what Jesus has done. I believe, and I will follow Him. Some of us have made that decision in the past, but we all, myself included, we we need to I think reevaluate where we are on that commitment. And how is that commitment being played out in our lives and in our relationship and the way that we handle our time and our money? Uh, are we denying ourselves for the good of your kingdom? And for others who've never made that decision to be a follower, I pray that right now, in this moment, they would decide because of the glory that awaits us, because of the party we're invited to, all we need to do is follow the servant, accept the invitation. And so I pray that they would just say, Lord, I believe and I will follow. I pray that all of us together then would, um, would say to you, we are yours. All that we are, all that we have, we commit to you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and again, you know, it's easy to say those things. It's easy to sing those things. The question is, do we mean it? You know, and uh, and if we do, if we really understand who Jesus is, what he what he came to do, what he did, and what he offers us, uh, freedom, uh, forgiveness, a rescue, and the grace of God poured out into our lives. When we understand that and we embrace it and we believe it, man, it, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out, and it changes the way that we live. And so the question, you know, is that commitment to Jesus that some of us have made, how is that being played out in, li- in our lives? Uh, and is it? And, uh, and hopefully we all recognize, you know, it's, being a Christian is not about your good efforts. It's not about your hard work. It's about the grace of God. But that grace does indeed change things. It changes us. And so uh, I hope that you have come to that decision because it's worth it. All of it's worth it uh, in the end. Uh, if you have more questions about what that means, you know, some of our prayer team folks will be up here following the service. They'll be happy to talk with you. Or maybe you're going through some things in life. You know, we talked about the will of God and you're struggling with some things that are happening. Uh, they're here for you as well. So come up and talk with them. They'll pray for you. But um, thanks for coming. I just want to give you a heads up. In a couple, two weeks, we're starting a new series called Life and Ooze, um, which is um, where Job lived. 
so it's a, we're going to look at Job's story in the Old Testament, Job who went through an awful lot of suffering, and he learned a lot through it, and I think there's a lot that we can learn. Because one of the primary questions of our culture is, you know, with the suffering in the world and the brokenness all around us, where is God in all of it, and how do I understand it when suffering comes into my own personal experience? And, uh, and many of us know what, know, we know what that's like. And so we're going to take a look at Job over several weeks. I think you're going, to be fi- you're going to find it very helpful. I know I'm learning a lot already. So we're going to start that in two weeks, okay? In the meantime, have a great afternoon. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. I want to thank Chad for being. Thanks, Chad, for being with us this morning. Thanks, Chad. So let me pray for us. And now, Lord, I pray that as we leave this building, as the church goes back out into the world, to our jobs, our schools, our friends, our family, um, even even strangers that we meet, I pray that we would live our lives with such commitment and with such grace and such love and compassion and generosity um, that people will see in us something different, and they will see they will see in us someone different. They will see Jesus, and we can point them to Him. And so now may your hand of grace and peace and strength and power rest on your people. I ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.